I'm Pastor Darrell Curtis, and you're listening to the 17th part of my sermon series, The Last Year of the Life of Christ, in which my point is that it is most important that we obey the law of God and have a spirit of sacrifice. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. September 28th, and this is our 17th episode in this last year of the Life of Christ saga. Our text for this morning is Luke chapter 11, verse 52, which says, Destruction awaits you experts on the law. You have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourself did not enter, and you have hindered those who tried to enter. God bless the reading of his word, and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name. Of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear this message this morning. Before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to, to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, in our last lesson, I made a theological argument to show the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. My point was that the things of this world with which we have to deal are actually just copies of the true things that are in heaven. This earthly life is analogous to eternal life in the same way that high school football is analogous to the NFL or that a Barbie dress-up doll is analogous to a runway model. Thus, many of the tenets in the law of Moses represent copies of the true law of God. They are not permanent, but are only substitute for, substitutes for that which is permanent. Hebrews 10 and 1 tells us, for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. So the biblical argument is that every condition in this physical world is temporary. It is then logical that the letter of the law of God will change as the temporary conditions addressed by the law change. An example of a law that has become obsolete is recorded in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 27 through 30, which says, If anyone among the common people sins unintentionally by doing something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and is guilty, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, then he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats, a female without blemish, for his sin which he has committed. 
and he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of its blood on his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. So the law of Moses prescribed the shedding of animal blood as an atonement for sin. Now God's original deterrent for sin was the imposition of the death penalty. Genesis 2, 15 through 17 records, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree in the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now when the man and the woman sinned and became aware of their nakedness, they hid by covering themselves with fig leaves. God changed their coverings, as Genesis chapter 3 verse 21 through 23 records, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Now, God killed an animal to provide those first tunics of skin to provide a covering because of the sins of man. This set forth the pattern of using animals as a sacrifice for sin, as Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death. And when sin is committed, the wages must be paid. There must be a death to atone for sin, which is why Hebrews 9 and 22 tells us, and, almost, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission, meaning the act of pardoning our sin or offense. When the death that occurs to atone for sin is not the death of the one that actually committed the sin, the death is called a sacrifice, which is the destruction of something for the sake or benefit of something else. And as we read in Leviticus 4, God set up a system in the law of Moses in which sinful men could sacrifice their animals to die for their sins. And the Jews sacrificed animals by the millions, shedding animal blood on the altar at Jerusalem for their atonement. But on the cross of Calvary, Jesus Christ shed his own precious blood to provide the true permanent sacrifice for sin actually paying the penalty that we owe for the sins that we have committed. Jesus' sacrifice provides us forgiveness of sin, not just in this life, but in our eternal life as well. The animal sacrifices were simply a temporary symbol to prepare the Jews for the true sacrifice for their sin by Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10 and 4 tells us, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Now, when my son first started driving regularly on his own, he drove his mother's old four-wheel drive truck 
that probably would have allowed him to come out on top in almost any accident that he might have. My rule for him, however, was that he could not have any passengers in his vehicle because I knew from my research that teenagers distracting one another while they are driving was the number one cause of accidents among that age range. But now that Paul is an adult and an experienced driver, he drives with other people in his car, carries on conversations with his mother as he drives, and works talking business with his peers on his cell phone as he drives. But the purpose of the rule that I gave Paul when he was a teenager was not to keep Paul from ever having anyone in his car with him while he was driving, but to make it more likely that he would keep his attention on the road while he was still an inexperienced driver. But now that Paul has become a skilled driver, it is no longer necessary for him to drive alone. My law was always intended to be temporary, only to be in effect until Paul obtained enough practice driving to become an experienced driver. And we read the letter of God's law that instructed the Jews to sacrifice an animal when they sinned. But just like my law to my son, this particular law was designed to be temporary until Jesus Christ, the actual sacrifice for sin, died on the cross and sent the Holy Spirit as a permanent reminder of his sacrifice to those who believe in him. The Apostle Paul described the change in the law caused by the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us in Romans chapter 8, verse 2 through 5, which says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, that is the spirit of the law, has made me free from the law of sin and death, that is the letter of the law. For what the letter of the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law, that is the spirit of the law, might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, that is the letter of the law, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit of the law, the things of the spirit. Now, whenever we examine a tenet of the law, we must determine the spiritual principle that the law is meant to reinforce in our minds and then make sure that the letter of the law still reinforces that principle. Fortunately, the Lord has provided us a great hint by dividing his word into two sections, the Old Testament, which focuses on the law of Moses, and the New Testament, which focuses on Christ. Galatians 3, 24 and 25 describes, Therefore the law of Moses was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Romans chapter 10, verse 4 says, for Christ is the end of the law of Moses for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, the Jewish legal experts did not acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, as Jesus told, so Jesus told them in Luke 11 and 52, destruction awaits you experts on the law. 
you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you have hindered those who tried to enter. Now, what does this mean? When Jesus Christ came on the scene to personally atone for the sins of man, bringing the Jewish leaders the information that their temporary positions as administrators of the animal sacrifices was being phased out in favor of himself as the true sacrifice for sin, the leaders were so invested in their temporary ceremonial positions that they refused to recognize the work of God. The Jewish leaders would not acknowledge the, divi the, the, the divinity of Jesus' miracles, although they were so powerful that any objective person would know that they were divine. The Jewish leaders disregarded the divine purpose of the law of Moses, using the letter of the law as a defense mechanism to protect their personal turf. Their attempts to, attempts to protect their leadership status by their self-serving interpretation of the law caused them to lead those that followed them down the path to destruction. People often follow the example of those that teach the law rather than taking the time to analyze the law themselves. Therefore, it is destructive when a teacher of the law does not follow it. In Matthew 23, 1 through 3, Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples saying, the scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. A peer of mine in the dance crowd called me about a problem that he was having. He related an episode to me about a woman of his acquaintance that asked him to dance with her at a dance venue. She was in a 20-year marriage, and she lived in another town, and while they were dancing, she invited him to the dance venue in her town for an event that her dance club was sponsoring. After the conversation, the young man went back to his table, and the fellows that watched their interaction from the table speculated that the woman was trying to get his attention for more than dancing. The young man accepted her invitation and verified when he went to the dance that their evaluation was correct. Reverend Curtis, the young man exclaimed, I don't know what's happening to married people these days, but something has to be done about it. People are getting divorces like there's no tomorrow, including most of the church people that I know. Marriage counseling doesn't seem to help because the people that I know that get divorces have been to marriage counseling and they get divorces anyway. But something has to be done. I know that you and your wife have been married for a long time and you dance together like you intend to stay married. Maybe you can do something because something has to be done. Pretty soon, everyone will be divorced and then what about the kids? I'm trying to stay married in order to raise my daughter, but something has to be done about this divorce situation. Well, I explained to the young man, one of the major problems of our culture is that divorce is now considered an acceptable solution to marital problems rather than a shameful failure to keep one's commitments. Were it considered a shame to divorce, people would try harder and be more successful at resolving marital problems. But in our culture, divorce is often recommended rather than reviled. The reason that so many marriage counselors fail to help people stay married 
is that the counselors really don't believe in marriage because they themselves are divorced. And it is simply natural for divorced people to counsel others to divorce in order to affirm their own decision to do so. Most people, even those that are counselors, have a difficult time wholeheartedly counseling someone to hang in there when they themselves have quit. So tell your friends that are having marital trouble and decide to seek marriage counseling that, is, that it is important that they choose a marriage counselor that has been successful in marriage themselves. Because it is extraordinary to find a counselor that has been divorced that will really work hard to help maintain someone else's marriage. To keep the church from being weighed down by the divorce culture, God tells us in the A portion of 1 Timothy 3 and 2, a bishop then should be blameless, the husband of one wife, but we have chosen to disobey God and we are reaping that which we have sown. Religious leaders need to stay in line with the spirit of the word of God. No one is perfect, but it is important for the church to be circumspect about leadership because it is only natural and very likely that the faults of the leader will become the faults of the congregation. This was certainly the case in Israel. Jesus said in Matthew 23 and 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And Jesus then explains some of the leader's specific faults in Luke 11 and 42. He says, but destruction awaits you, Pharisees. You give a tenth of your mint and rue and other herbs, yet you disregard justice and love for God. You should have done the former without leaving the latter undone. Jesus teaches us how we ought to give gifts to the Lord in several passages of scripture. Matthew 5, 23 and 24 tells us, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Reconciliation with our brother before giving to God is a requirement for sincere giving because the way we treat others is the foremost indication of our relationship to God. 1 John 4, 20 and 21 tells us, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother also. Now the Pharisees are in breach of this commandment because they hate Jesus Christ with all the cause. So their gifts are null and void. Jesus also taught us about giving in Mark chapter 12 verse 41 through 44 which says, Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrans. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury, for they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all, of, all she had, her whole livelihood. 
God honors gifts that are actually sacrificial, as in the case of the widow. Jesus did not say that the other did not put in gifts, but that the widow put in more. The Lord compares that which we do to that which he has done, and his expectation is that we will grow spiritually to the point that we are willing to sacrifice ourselves just as he did. This is the case of the widow giving according to the spirit of the law, which is sacrificial, while others gave according to the letter. Jesus further points out, uh, further's point about giving is taught in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, which says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and that your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Now, people that give publicly often do so to impress others that they might be thought of as spiritual. But God's plan is that our giving ought not be to impress others, but not only to him and to us, so that our sacrificial giving experience will be to us an emulation of the sacrificial giving experience of Jesus Christ. Jesus' ultimate sacrifice was not given to earthly fanfare, but was a true sacrifice because it did not benefit Jesus in any way, but only advanced the kingdom of God. Now, it is clear from these three passages of Scripture that just giving a gift is not the most important thing, but it is most important that the spirit with which we obey the law of God must be a sacrificial spirit, meaning that we must be able to put aside our own needs so that any benefit that comes from that which we do will go to others. And we must be able to put aside our desires to build up our own reputation so that any glory from that which we do will go to God. Jesus' teaching on giving is just one example to display the fact that the Jewish leaders are leading the people astray. Jesus goes on to tell the leaders in Luke 11:43 43 and 44, destruction awaits you, Pharisees, you love the most prominent seats in the synagogues and to be greeted in the marketplaces. Destruction awaits you. You're like unmarked graves, which people walk over without realizing it. Now, the Mosaic law taught in Numbers 19 and 16 that having contact with a grave would make a Jew unclean for seven days. Jesus called the Pharisees unmarked graves, defiling the people with their lives and teachings although the people were unaware of the danger. Jesus explains the reference to the synagogues and marketplaces in Matthew 6, 5, and 6, which says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray... Go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place, and your father who sees in secret 
will reward you openly. Now the Jews have the same problem with recognition in prayer that they have with money. The Jewish leaders are not performing their religious responsibilities to build up the kingdom of God, but rather for their own glory. As Jesus says, good works that lead to our recognition by men as the author of the works does not build up our reward in heaven. We accomplish everything beneficial by the power and grace of God. Thus, God is the one that is worthy to be praised. When we set ourselves up to be praised by our peers for the works that God has done, God is not pleased, and the temporary praise that we receive from men is all of the reward for which we are eligible. When we give glory to God for the works he has done through us, he says to us, as Matthew 25 and 21 records, his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So our position ought be that we are simply servants of God and that which we do is for his glory. Jesus instructs us in Luke 17 and 10 so likewise you, when you have done all those things which you have, have are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done only what was our duty to do. Now the Pharisees were not the only ones whose feelings were hurt by Jesus' teachings. Luke eleven forty six to 48 says, Then one of the experts on the law answered, Teacher, you also insult us when you say these things. Jesus replied, destruction awaits you experts on the law as well. You weigh people down with impossible burdens while you yourself refuse to lift a finger to help. Destruction awaits you because you build the tombs of the prophets whom your ancestors murdered. In this way you affirm and approve the actions of your ancestors. They murdered them and you build their tombs. Now God intended that observing rituals of the law be an exercise in devotion to focus the attention of, of Israel on serving him. But God did not intend that his law be oppressive. The law becomes oppressive, however, when the focus of the law changes from serving God to serving man. God has all of the resources in the universe. He gives us resources and the ability to grow them and then asked us to show our gratitude and love for him by returning part of the resource to him. But when human leaders become the focus of our service, they generally do not supply resources, but take them. And men will take oppressively in order to increase their own kingdom. The leaders want to build up the treasury, not to build up the kingdom of God, but to build up their own kingdoms. And when corrupt religious leadership comes into power, God sends prophets to warn the people of their corruption. And the general response of a corrupt leader to having the prophet's finger pointed at him is to silence the prophet. This is, of course, the reason for the persecution of the Old Testament prophets that predicted the overthrow of the corrupt Jewish nation and also the human reason for the persecution of Jesus Christ. Jesus says in Luke eleven forty nine through 51, therefore the wisdom of God also said, 
I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. So Jesus Christ and all of the prophets sent by God have come to the nation of Israel with a benevolent purpose, that being to turn the people, including their leaders, back to God. David, the king of Israel, gave the example of a positive response to a prophet after David impregnated Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, a soldier in the army of Israel. To cover up his crime, Uriah has Israel, had, uh, rather, David had Uriah killed in battle. 1 Samuel 11, 26 through 12, 23 records, So when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate out of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with his sword. You have, you have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will rain up adversary against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he will lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned 
against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child who is born to you shall surely die. The Nathan departed to his house and the Lord struck the child that Uriah, Uriah's wife bore to David and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this you have done? You fasted and wept for the child when he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And David said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Now David sinned, presenting an extremely poor example to Israel, but he had a repentant spirit, so much so that God said in Acts 13 and 22, God raised up for them David as king, to whom he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We will all have a day when we need the admonition of a prophet as David did. It is our responsibility as Christians to listen to and understand what the prophet says, to apply the necessary law to our lives, and to perform the appropriate act of repentance so that we can be restored as was David by the Lord, who died that our sins might be forgiven. Yes, we will commit sins. We will have consequences from the Lord because of our sinfulness. And some consequences may last for the remainder of our lives on this side, as was the case with David. But we can be encouraged by the realization that our consequences in this life will not affect the totality of our existence because there is another land where the wicked cease from troubling and the weary will be at rest. Let us not become rebellious, become defensive, or try to dodge our responsibility to the Lord while seeking justification for our sins in the letter of the law while ignoring the spirit of the law as did the scribes and the Pharisees. God loves us when we recognize the error of our ways and confess our sins. 
Let us not be defensive before him, but let us live our lives according to the admonition of 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for this lesson that you have given us and for the example of the Lord and then the negative example of the scribes and the Pharisees. And we ask you, Lord, to help us to avoid that self-righteousness that they had. Help us to avoid the defensiveness that they had, that they missed seeing the Savior because they were so defensive about that which they have done. Give us a mind that we might confess our faults one to another and pray one for another that we might be healed. For you said in your word that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man has much power in its effect. Give us an humble spirit that we might be able to humble ourselves before you to admit our faults and to receive absolution from you. And now Lord, we thank you for all that in the house today. We ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus we pray. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.